This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 288, The Fall of Rabaul. Last time, forces of the Japanese Empire, needing to cut off Australia from the other allies, sent out an invasion force towards New Guinea, the South Seas Detachment from Guam, and the South Seas Naval Forces from Truk. Yet before the large island just above Australia could be conquered, these smaller islands to its east coast had to fall first, New Britain and New Ireland. Even better for the invaders, with the possession of these two, the Japanese would then be free to turn west towards New Guinea, but also to the southeast to take the Solomon Islands, or further south, to Australia. In essence, they sought to control the center of this local chessboard. The Australian manned Lark Force, whose task it was to defend Rabaul, the major port city on New Britain, had already been told by their superiors they were to be sacrificed. Yet Colonel Scanlon wasn't having any of that. Canberra might not send reinforcements and order Lark Force to oppose the enemy's landing, but the colonel was going to do his best to make sure his men did not die in vain. Further, as the Japanese sent in air attacks during January to soften up the defenses at Rabaul, Wing Commander LaRue did his best with what he had. After that, it was just a matter of waiting. On January 21st, the Japanese fleet was only 65 miles, or 104 kilometers, from Rabaul. That same day, Vice Admiral Chiichi Nagumo, in charge of the naval fleet coming from truck, sent off fighters and bombers from all four of his carriers towards Rabaul, yet it was not the target. Instead, 52 fighters and bombers would hit Kabiang on the north top of New Ireland, itself just east of New Britain, while 75 fighters and bombers went after various targets on the far eastern half of New Guinea. Lay, Salumala, Balulo, and Madang, all of these, except Bululo, were along the coast. Nothing, it seems, was beyond the reach of the invaders, and the Allies had just been reminded of that. Still on January 21st, a Catalina flying boat spotted a large enemy naval force just west of the northern half of New Ireland. This put it on a collision course with Rabaul. Hence, Colonel Scanlon was informed. Preparations had already been underway for Lark Force to head into the jungle. Now he told those defenders closest to the coast to join him. As outnumbered as they were, 
his men on a promontory would have had even less of a chance against the enemy's naval guns. The next day, January 22nd, was overcast with light showers. Strangely, this caused fear among the fleet's lookouts, who just knew Allied submarines were gunning for them, and the darkened waters would make it harder to spot those subs. But the truth was, Allied subs in the area were few, and as for the Americans, as we have seen, only at the best of times were their torpedoes not defective. Just before the sun had come up, Wing Commander LaRue, the man who had sent the bitter message in Latin, again defied orders. He was supposed to turn over command to Flight Lieutenant Brooks and fly his lone Hudson bomber to Port Moresby on the southeast coast of New Guinea with a minimum crew. He was to head up a newly created squadron. Nothing doing, he loaded up as many wounded men as would fit instead of leaving them behind. He also put on board as many of his pilots and ground crew personnel as possible, for their skills in the future would be a greater contribution to the war effort than getting them killed as incompetent infantrymen. As for Lieutenant Brooks and those that couldn't fit, they indeed were ordered to join Colonel Scanlon and Lark Force in defending the airfield near Rabaul. By this time, Lieutenant Selby and his gunners on their height had spotted the first of the enemy fleet coming right at Rabaul. This was reported to Scanlon. The enemy could land troops within hours if they wanted to. However, the Australians did not know of the Japanese plan to come ashore that night. Colonel Scanlon, like LaRue, did not believe in sacrificing his men, so had the units on the beach pull back. Indeed, there was little for them to die for. The airstrip already had bombs placed around it, such that it would, hopefully, take time for the Japanese to repair it before it could be used. And their coastal defense guns had already been taken out by the air raids, as had much of their radio equipment, which left the two old anti-aircraft guns, manned by Lieutenant Selby and his very young lads. To this, Scanlon ordered Selby to destroy the guns, which he did with a heavy heart. Only then did they begin to come down from the mountain. Their last two battered trucks, which had survived the numerous air attacks, carried the men, their Vickers light machine gun, an anti-tank rifle, and as much ammunition as they would hold. The 18 nurses at the local hospital watched as the men had been running around, but now seemed in a daze as reports were coming in that the enemy was just outside the harbor. A few days from this very moment, all these women would be prisoners and sent to Yokohama. They would be remembered as the lost women of Rabaul. For three years and nine months, they would disappear from the face of the earth. By 10.30 p.m. that night of the 22nd, the Japanese fleet was in place. There was no wind or moonlight, as predicted. Perfect for the upcoming amphibious assault. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. 
I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. At 11 p.m., the flight's landing barges were filling with Japanese soldiers. These men began to look beachward, but as everything was dark, there was no telling what awaited them. Just after 1 a.m., the 1st Battalion of the 144th Infantry Regiment, led by Lieutenant Colonel Hatsuo Tsukamoto, reached shore at Prade Point on the northern side of Blanche Bay, near but below where Lieutenant Selby left his two wrecked coastal defense guns. But the Japanese men did not go completely unchallenged, as they were five miles or eight kilometers southeast of Rabao. The good news was that their landing location put the Lacunai airfield in between themselves and Rabao. The bad news, though they had no trouble coming ashore, they found behind the beach a ten-foot-high cliff, followed by thick woods. Another half-hour was lost trying to find a way up and then to locate the road that led to the Lacunai airfield. And fate had determined that Lieutenant Colonel Hauzo and his men would have the easiest of the three landings that night. Meanwhile, at Rauluana Beach, on the south side of Blanche Bay, Lieutenant Selby, his anti-aircraft gunners, and a company's worth of support staff, like office personnel and mess hall waiters, who now had guns, were waiting. Just after 3 a.m., the Japanese began to come ashore, right in front of Selby and company. The signal went out, and the Australians opened up as one. But this was not to be a sustained fight to stop the enemy from coming ashore. That was never going to happen. Worse, the support ships further out started blasting with their large guns at the defenders. Within minutes of the first shot, the Australians were ordered to pull back. And this retreat would last for weeks, and by the time it was over, Selby and those with him would be whittled down to a much smaller number. The third and final landing took place due west of Raluana Beach. The way the coastline worked, this would put these men just south of Mount Vulcan. Their assignment was to reach shore and run due west to make for the nearby Vuna Canal airfield. Yet one unit, the Ninth Company somehow ended up landing just north of Mount Vulcan and right in front of Major William T. Owen's guns. Having two days to prepare, Owen had Rifle Company A along with 80 men of the New Guinea Rifle Volunteers. They were as green as they could be, but the defensive setup calmed many nerves. 
First, Owen's men had an open view of the beach. Next, they put thick coconut logs in front of their line. A Company had one Vickers machine gun crew, and they, too, had an excellent open view of the beach. Further, the anti-tank and mortar units were just behind the infantry. Lastly, barbed wire was strung along the beach to slow down any enemy advance. If the enemy came this way while they were cutting the wires, they themselves would be cut down by well-organized fire. As the night was calm, no wind, and the water gently lapping the shore, Owen's men had no trouble hearing diesel engines approaching. Moments later, Japanese troops started coming ashore. As Corporal Kenneth Hale from Victoria tells it, as they landed, the Japanese were laughing, talking, and striking matches. One of them even shone a torch. We allowed most of them to get out of their boats and then fired everything we had. In my section, we had one Lewis gun, one Tommy gun, eight rifles. The Vickers gun also opened up with us. We gave the mortars their position, and in a matter of moments, they were sending their bombs over. Still, the brave Japanese soldiers tried twice to rush further inland, but were repulsed each time, with terrible losses. After that, they began to move south along the beach to seek an easier way. But getting back to the 1st Battalion of the 144th Infantry Regiment, who came ashore at Prade Point on the north side of the bay, once they were up and over the cliff, they were making good time towards Lacunai Airfield, but not the regiment's 1st Squad. They had been ordered to rush up the nearby height and locate the possible 10 coastal artillery guns. There were only two, and they had been destroyed, yet the Japanese were now searching for them, and did not know this, and they had been ordered to find all ten or cut open your bowels and die. They came upon the first and only two, but no additional searching could locate the rest. Finally, at 4 a.m., when the fleet was about to move out in order to not be within range of those guns when the sun came up, only then did first squad figure out there had only been two the entire time. Their bowels remained intact. As the night of now, January 23rd, grew ever closer to dawn, more and more Japanese troops came ashore at various points, to the southeast and south of Rabaul. Not that it was ever going to be a close contest, but complicating the defenders' situation, during the various retreats and firefights, radio equipment was either destroyed or abandoned. Orders came via word of mouth, which wasted precious time. The latest order making the rounds was, it was every man for himself. And then, proving the adage, it can always get worse. When sunlight did come, the Aussies, now outnumbered 14 to 1 and outgunned, had to deal with the guns of the warships in the bay and bombers and fighters overhead, seeking out the retreating defenders. The town was occupied, Lark Force was pushed into the jungle. The Battle of Rabaul was over. By this point, Lieutenant Selby had sent most of his troops with those who were retreating, but he and the rest found Colonel Scanlon just beyond Vuna Canal Airfield, located seven kilometers or four and a half miles to the southwest of Rabaul, 
Their current status became official. Each man was to fend for himself. As for Kevyang on New Ireland, the resistance there was even less than Rabaul's. When the 4,000 Japanese Special Naval Landing Force troops reached the beach at Kaviang and one other location, the defenders had already headed into the jungle. To fight was pointless. They were looking for a way off the island. However, the men of the 1st Independent Commando Company, about 250 men with some European civilians, would all be dead before 1942 ended. Only a few officers sent to Japan made it through the war. On January 24th, Tokyo announced the successful landings on these two islands to the world. But not everything was perfect in the wider fighting. As we have already seen, when a Japanese convoy was heading to Balikpapan on Borneo, Rear Admiral William A. Glassford, with his own patrol, along with a Dutch bomber and Dutch submarine, managed to take out six enemy transports and damage two more. No, they had not stopped the enemy from landing on Borneo, but it was the first surface engagement in the Southwest Pacific by the U.S. Navy in the war. As we will see later, by this time, the U.S. and Filipino forces in the Philippines had been pushed back to the Bataan Peninsula. With the situation there equally hopeless, FDR would order General Douglas MacArthur to leave there and head to Australia. The Aussies were about to get a new commander, but with that, at least to some degree, a new source of military hardware. With Rabaul under Japanese control, the hunt was on for the Australian troops, now fleeing deeper into New Britain's jungles. As there were civilians within their ranks, groups of both died as they were strafed overhead or ran into continuous ambushes. One reporter survived the ordeal and brought back this story. A group of ten men were captured, which included medical personnel. This was evident by their Red Cross armbands. It is important to note they were non-combatants. Still, one by one, they were led into the woods, each one by a different Japanese soldier and killed with either a sword or bayonet. As this deadly game of hide-and-seek continued, the Australians and civilians would spend the next 78 days walking over 300 miles of New Britain's coast, looking for rescue vessels. The motor yacht La Rabada from New Guinea would find them, but by then half of them had died from hunger, disease, or by enemy hands. By January 23rd, Australian Prime Minister John Curtin was informed of the successful invasions. To this, he sent a telegram to Churchill. The heavy scale of the Japanese attack on Rabaul, where, including other parts of the Bismarck archipelago there, is a force of 1,700, and the probability of its occupation, if such has not already occurred, presage an early attack on Port Moresby. The strength of Australian troops at Port Moresby is 5,500. Great importance is attached to the centre by our Chiefs of Staff, as it is the only base in this region from which control can be exercised of the Torrey Strait, which is the most direct line of supply to Darwin, the Dutch East Indies, 
and Malaya. In other words, Australia was desperately vulnerable, yet her best divisions were either fighting in North Africa or in Malaya, trying to shield Singapore. And if Singapore and the Philippines fell, Australia, or at least its northern half, could be next. In the same message, Curtin added, The government, in realizing its responsibility to prepare the public for the possibility of resisting an aggressor, also has a duty and obligation to explain why it may not have been possible to prevent the enemy reaching our shores. But he wasn't saying he would be the one taking the blame. No, that was being placed at the feet of Churchill. Yet the British Prime Minister had his own beef with his Australian counterpart, for Curtin had already publicly stated that Australia was determined not to fall to the enemy, and to prevent this, the government shall devote all our energies towards shaping a plan with the United States as its keystone, which will give our country some confidence of being able to hold out until the tide of battle swings against our enemy. Thus was the bond between Australia and Great Britain severed. Stepping up was the United States, and Curtin made his intentions very clear by telling FDR back on December 10th, as the wounds of Pearl Harbor were still fresh, that Australia would happily accept an American officer as their commander. And helping himself even further, as all good politicians do, Curtin had already been in contact with General MacArthur, who at the time was still fighting in the Philippines. Meanwhile, the savagery continued on New Britain. In February, 160 men, mostly soldiers, but not all, were murdered at Toll Plantation, located south by southwest of Rabaul, near Wide Bay. Others were killed when they surrendered or were captured. This number would easily surpass the victims at Toll Plantation. This left about 400 all toll, who evaded the Japanese and eventually reached Australia. But Colonel Scanlon was not one of those. Having surrendered, he was taken to Japan and survived the war as a POW. When he returned home, however, his disgust at his men being abandoned on New Britain was such that he would not talk about the events again. Not until June 22nd were 849 POWs and 209 captured civilians taken to Japan by the Japanese cargo ship Montevideo Maru. Sadly, it was not marked as a POW vessel. So on July 1st, a U.S. submarine made contact with it. Four torpedoes were sent out. The ship disappeared within 10 minutes. None of the Australians survived. As for Lieutenant Selby, he and some of his gun crew also refused to surrender. Instead of facing the Japanese, they decided to fight the jungle and terrain of New Britain. This went on through February and March. It was then they reached a plantation at Palmalmau along the south coast. On April 9th, they were picked up, 137 soldiers and 20 civilians. Those were the ones that had survived the hunt. They were taken to Port Moresby to live and fight another day. For this war, 
on New Britain, but for New Guinea, to see who would control the north coast of Australia would go on, almost non-stop, for years. Postscript. The lost women of Rabaul, their ages ranged from 20-something to their 50s, were taken to Japan along with 800 POWs, but the latter were sent on a different ship. That ship, as we have seen, was torpedoed by an American submarine. Taken to a nice hotel, the Japanese lady behind the desk asked the captured nurses if they wanted a single or double room, as if nothing untoward was happening. The nurses, thinking this might be a brothel and they might be expected to work there, asked for double rooms to look after each other. They were then taken to the Yokohama Yacht Club. Again, their surroundings were pleasant. But as time went by, they were given less food. Being made to make small bags, the women found out that these were being given to Japanese soldiers heading to the front though the nurses had no idea what was being put in those bags. They were also forced to make envelopes. That is, until the ladies found out they could eat the glue as it was made of rice flour. They then spent three years in the city's police station, which wasn't as nice, but they made do. After this time, they were sent to Totsuka, west of Yokohama, in the countryside. But here conditions were much worse. They were living in a tuberculosis hospital, and when it turned cold, the women suffered as they had been used to tropical conditions and were given very little to warm themselves. They spent their days carrying water back to the nearby village. The last six months of the war, not that they had any idea of what was happening, were the worst. With little warmth or food, they became sick. One suffered from tuberculosis. When the first atomic bomb was dropped, again, they knew nothing of it. A guard came rushing into their rooms, screaming, Parkinson, Parkinson. Kay Parker was in charge of the nurses. Parker, refusing to take any guff during their entire imprisonment, snapped, Now what do you want? For this defiance, she was slapped and kicked around. When this was over, she stood up and repeated, What now? The guard replied, America, no good. One bomb, Hiroshima, all gone, all gone. Kay replied, I wouldn't worry about that. They've got plenty more of those up their sleeve. The guard went away, still angry, but scared. After this, the main guard, an older man who had always treated them with respect, came in. He told them that he was leaving as he had been ordered to do something to them that he could not bring himself to do. The nurses did not know that they were all to be executed if the Americans landed on the home islands. Then, two days later, they were treated a little better. The conditions were still horrific, but no one screamed at them anymore. Yet there were now more guards around them, which scared the nurses. But it turned out they were being protected in case the locals sought revenge for the two atomic bombs. Still, no provisions were made for them or their release. As no one was looking for them, their existence was still unknown. Troops of General MacArthur just happened to come upon them as they were marching towards Tokyo after the Japanese surrendered. They were quickly taken home. 
However, the one who came down with tuberculosis, Eileen Callahan, did not improve. Yet she was happy that she would be dying at home. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.